Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. One last parable before the horrific life-saving events of Holy Week. One more parable. And last week, we talked about what to do and not to do when you're reading a parable. So let's apply that to this most important one about a vineyard, its tenants, and its owner. Now, the context of this parable matters, and we don't actually get the context in our gospel reading, so I'm going to back up to the very beginning of chapter 20 and just read the first two verses. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. That's the context into which Jesus is going to end up telling this parable. So first of all, there are the people in whose presence Jesus speaks these words. And that's the people. The people that are gathered in the temple to listen to Jesus teach and to hear him share the good news with them. But to whom is it specifically addressed? Not just the people in general, but specifically the chief priests, the scribes, with the elders. Those are the ones to whom Jesus is speaking this parable particularly. Not simply to the people at large, although they are certainly all there to hear it, just as you and I are here to hear it this morning. And what is the question at stake? What is Jesus trying to get to the heart of with this parable? It has to be the concern that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are laying before Jesus. By what authority or in whose name do you bring the people this good news? Now, this particular parable is meant to evoke a very strong image in people's minds. The problem is that our Old Testament lesson for today was not that particular image, and I'm not entirely sure why. Because anybody who is a Jew, who is well familiar with the Old Testament, who's listening to this parable, has a very specific image in their minds from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, very early in the book. So I'm going to share those words of the Lord with you right now. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. 
For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Anybody in Jerusalem, especially the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, listening to Jesus share this parable, is immediately thinking of those words from Isaiah chapter 5. So what happens in this parable exactly? Well, the first thing that happens is an escalation. We have an owner who owns a vineyard, lends it out to tenants, and goes away to a far country. Thus far, the parable makes total sense to anybody who's listening to it. This is very, very typical of the way agriculture was done 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, and is still done in other places today. The person that owns the farm or the orchard, the vineyard, lives somewhere else and lends it out and then gets a portion of the goods of that land at harvest time. When he wants to get his fruits of the vineyard, he sends a servant. But instead of giving that servant what was due the owner, that servant is beaten and sent away empty-handed. So the master sends a second servant, and here's the escalation. This servant is beaten and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. And then the third time when the servant is sent, he is more than beaten. He's wounded, and he's not just sent away He's cast out. So we can see we've got a situation here where things are going from bad to worse. Every servant that the owner sends gets treated worse than the one before. And so now we come to the crux of the matter for the owner. What should he do? What do you expect to have come next? It's hard for us to ask that question because we've heard this parable so many times. We know what happens next, but imagine hearing it for the very first time in those temple courts in Jerusalem. People there who have Isaiah 5 in the back of their mind think they know what's going to come next. The boom's going to drop. Bomb's going to fall. We're going to get rid of the walls. The rain's not going to come down. He's going to level this vineyard. And certainly that would be the sane option. This owner would be totally in his rights to simply come and get rid of the tenants and the vineyard once and for all. That's what the people expect will happen. But instead of the sane option, the owner goes with the crazy option. Let's think they beat the first servant. They treated the second servant shamefully and took his honor away. They wounded and cast out the third servant. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my beloved son. That is the crazy option. That makes no sense. And that's precisely what the owner does. And in fact, one of my favorite commentators on the Gospel of Luke translates the phrase this way, I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will feel shame in his presence. Maybe if I send my son, they will realize that they have been the ones acting without honor. It's a crazy idea, but maybe it'll work. Back in the early 1980s, King Hussein of Jordan was faced with a very similar situation in his kingdom. 
His Secret Service told him that there were 75 army officers that were plotting to overthrow the monarchy. Basically, to rebel against the rest of the armed forces and plunge the whole country into a civil war. Now, we know what most kings would do in that situation, but King Hussein wasn't like those other kings. He didn't choose the sane option. He went with the crazy option. He had a Secret Service bring him a helicopter, which he got in and he flew to the place where the people were meeting to plot this coup. And he walked in among them. And he said to them this, if you go ahead with this plan, the army is going to fracture and tens of thousands of lives will be lost in a bloody civil war. Here I am. Kill me now. And then only one man dies. Now, in the case of King Hussein, the idea was so crazy, it actually worked. The people were ashamed of what they were trying to do, and they all pledged loyalty to the king, and the civil war was averted. This is an even greater situation, though, because the owner of the vineyard is none other than our Lord. God himself, who chooses, like King Hussein, the crazy option, and chooses to one more time offer grace, an undeserved kindness, where his wrath would have been justified. Unlike the situation with King Hussein, how do the people respond? This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Now, in the Mishnah, the teachings of the Jews, there is instruction regarding squatters' rights. And the way it goes is this. Title by squatters' rights, or the fancy word usucaption, to houses, cisterns, olive presses, and slaves is secured by occupation during three complete years. After that, all of those property become the owners of the people that have been occupying the property. That is sort of what's going through the mind of these tenants. If we can just keep the land for three years, then it's going to be ours, especially if there's no heir. But what is it exactly that they want to inherit? And again, the picture in your mind should be from Isaiah chapter 5. The vineyard is the Lord's. It's his people. It's the people that he is building for himself. What is it that these tenants want to inherit? They want to inherit God's grace. They want to inherit God's love. They want to come to know God as the one who is a vineyard planter, who gives people good gifts. And they think that somehow they can inherit God's love by killing his son. How can one reject grace and then hope to receive grace? That's actually the question that Jesus is posing in front of the leaders. It's not God that's chosen the crazy option. It's us. That we think that somehow we can make someone love us by punishing them. So what is a vineyard owner to do? Isaiah chapter 5 
speaks of a vineyard that is forsaken, ruined, left to simply fall apart. There's no fruit left. There's only not even wild grapes. But here in the parable, what's very, very interesting is that it is not the vineyard that's the problem. In fact, the problem all along has been the tenants. And so Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And who are the tenants? The ones I talked about at the beginning of Luke chapter 20, the people that are being addressed by this parable. Yes, the people of the temple are hearing it, but the people to whom the parable is addressed are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They're the ones who have to be replaced. And why? Because they have not been looking after the vineyard. They have not been good tenants. They have not, to borrow another analogy, been good under-shepherds of the flock of God. Their teaching has either poisoned the people so much that they no longer recognize God when he's at work, or they have brought people like the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and sinners to despair that they can ever know a God of forgiveness and grace and love. The tenants have to go, that the vineyard itself, the people of God, might be saved. Now, Jesus goes on then to quote from the Old Testament, this business about a block that the builders are rejecting that's going to become the cornerstone. But there's a bit of a pun going on here, because Jesus was probably speaking not in Greek, which the Gospels are written in, but in either Aramaic or Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the word for stone is eben, and the word for son is ben. You're rejecting the eben because you reject the ben. You're rejecting the cornerstone because you've rejected God's coming to you in grace in his son. You've rejected God himself, who has finally chosen to come and be among you. So that leaves us with the one last question, right? The question we're always thinking about when we read a parable. Who are we in this parable? I told you not to ask that question, but it's okay here at the end to ask ourselves, what are we supposed to do? We at Ascension Lutheran Church in Montreal in the 21st century supposed to find ourselves in this parable. We are the strangest character in this parable of all. We're the vineyard. That's who we are in this parable. God will not leave his people in the hands of squatters, in the hands of those who only want the vineyard for their own purposes, for our wants and needs and desires, rather than feeding the people with what God wants them to have, proclaiming to them the gospel like Jesus did in the temple, teaching them the good news as Jesus did in the temple. God insists that he will be a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness for people like you and like me. He is always going to be the one who does the crazy thing. And instead of sending his armies against the vineyard to level it, 
he chooses to send his beloved son. That we who have been shamed by bad tenants might come under the leadership of God himself in Christ. In the coming couple of weeks on Good Friday, we're going to hear and respond to three reproaches, three complaints that God has against us. And one of those will be from Isaiah chapter 5. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? And God answered that question today in your hearing. What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.